I don't know about you this morning, church, but I am very glad that God never gave up on me. Man, do I need that grace. Uh, today, as we start, let me welcome you to Nineveh Christian Church. For those that are in the building with us, we are glad to see you today. For those that are online, we, uh, we're glad that you're joining us online, uh, especially those that maybe can't be here today for whatever reason or are out of town or in a place where you couldn't come. Uh, again, if you're, if you're in our area, we would love it. If you, especially getting close to Easter, if you would come and join us for a service in person, uh, we, we would just love for you to be here with us. Um, for those that are visiting today, maybe today's the first Sunday. We know we always get a number of visitors kind of cranks up as we get close to Easter. So if you're visiting today, I want to encourage you, I want to welcome you, I want to encourage you to, to fill out a visitor card. You should find one of those in one of the chairs in front of you. If you've not done that, not filled that out, we have a first-time visitor gift that we would like to give you today. Uh, that's got some church information. It's got um, a couple just gifts that we'd like to give you today, and, and we would love for you to fill that out and take it back through the doors uh, to the Welcome Center desk today as you leave. Also, those of you that are not visitors and therefore have clicked off your listeners for a second, because um, I know we don't listen if we don't have to sometimes, uh, everybody else, I want to encourage you, remember we have visitor cards, and we try to make that point of contact for everybody that comes and visits. Uh, that's, that's the one. If they don't fill that out, we don't really have a way of knowing that they were here. And so we encourage them. We want to encourage you. We're going to encourage you for Easter and Palm Sunday. Terry's going to make a challenge um, to bring somebody with you that, that is, does not come to church here. And so I'm asking you, when you do so, please have them fill out a visitor card because that's an, an opportunity then for us to make a point of contact with that person and reach out and follow up with them. So please remember that as well. As we get started today, we're going to be in the New Testament book of James. Just flip all the way to the end and then a few, few less pages. So he's right toward the end of the Bible. James chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there and we'll start there in just a moment. <clears throat> I called a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and it did that thing, right? It went straight to voicemail. Don't you love that? You call, and immediately you, you just know they're just, you know, not answering on purpose. And so it went straight to voicemail. <laughs> I sure hope you, you get those too, not just me. Um, <laughs> went straight to voicemail, and so, you know, normally I, I turn it off, but this time I thought, well, I'll stay. I'll leave a message. And, and, and when, I, when I did, I thought, she had a very interesting voicemail message that she had recorded. Here's what it said. I'm not available right now, but thank you for caring enough to call. The truth is I am making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beat. If I do not return your call, you are one of those changes. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Wasn't that an odd message? You know what? She's never called me back. She still hasn't called me back. Back in January, I preached a message that was called Camels and Gnats, where we discussed Jesus's words in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, where he says, you're focusing on all the wrong things. You're straining out gnats on the, you're straining on the unimportant, the trivial matters 
while you're ignoring the camels, the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. The truth is, if we are honest with ourselves today, church, we all have moments where we need to spiritually take careful examination of our lives and make some changes. I hope spiritually that I am never as stubborn to think that there aren't spiritual changes that need to be made in my life. That somehow I look at some point when I've reached some stage in my life and I would think, you know what, spiritually I'm great. Because there are always, when I compare my life to God, there are always changes that need to be made. There are always adjustments that need to be made. Today we're going to look at the book of James, and James is one of those books. James is one of those books that does not mind to step on our toes when it comes to the changes that need to be made in our lives in adjusting us with what God desires for us. And as we do, as we turn to James chapter 4, so if you're not there, turn there. As we do, we're going to see James telling the church in no uncertain terms Church, there are some changes that need to be made. So let's read that today. Let's read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 together. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot I'm sorry, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, James says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning. Change your joy to gloom. And in verse 10, he closes, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. May God bless the reading of his word today. The truth is, James makes some strong accusations in James chapter 4. We've been studying uh, the, the book of James in my Wednesday night small group for this semester. And this week I told my class, you guys are, unfortunately, you're going to get a double dose of James chapter 4. Because that's what we've studied this week. And at the same time, it's what God's laid on my heart to preach. And so we opened up the class Wednesday night with this question after we read these 10 verses that we just read. And I said, tell me what you think the tone is of James writing in these verses. Now, writing and reading, a, a, especially a, a thousands of a year old document may be hard just like with text messaging and email to understand what a person's tone is when you're reading it. But I certainly feel, and this is, was their sentiment 
Wednesday night as well. When you read these first 10 verses of James, he, it kind of seems as if he's got an accusatory tone here. It kind of seems like he's cranked up the, the, the message here, and he really is kind of hammering these Christians with some pretty serious accusations. It might, we might be tempted, if we didn't know much about the book of James, to think that maybe he's writing it to pagan unbelievers. Maybe he's writing it to people that don't know the truth, because he's talking a lot about a lot of pretty rough he, he, he talks in no certain terms about sin and about unfaithfulness and about the things that they're doing against God. But the truth is that the book of James is addressed to the church. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And while he wasn't a believer of Jesus until after the resurrection, he soon became a leader of the Jerusalem church pretty early on in the book of Acts. And he writes the book of James, he says in the first few verses of the letter, he's writing it to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That is, the early church, believers in Christ, who was, which was made up of Jewish believers that had been scattered by persecution into the world. We believe James is probably written right before the Gentile ministry of Paul kind of took off. It makes it one of our earliest New Testament books, and, it, and it's why James is addressing it to the church, but in a really Jewish context. And as such, these scattered into the world Jewish believers, James has a very important message to give them in James chapter 4 that he needs to address to the church. And I believe that it is still a very important message that needs to be addressed to the church, maybe even more so to today's church. Today we're going to talk about then a, a, an issue that James addresses in his letter. And if you're following along with the notes on the back, here's where we're going to start. Today the issue that James addresses, not just in chapter 4, but throughout the letter is this. It's the issue of friendship with God versus friendship with the world. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's the issue of friendship with God versus friendship with the world. You've looked, we, we've read the 10 verses, the first 10 verses of chapter 4. We've seen what James is going to say about being friends with the world, and that's really where we're going to open up, where, what we're going to focus on today. But first, I want to also show you that he talks in his letter about a particular person who was a friend of God. Look at James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and the faith, his faith was made complete by what he did. As, and the scripture, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then James adds this, and he was called God's friend. And he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith 
alone. That's James's point in chapter 2, and really it's a point that he makes throughout the book of James, is that faith by itself is not enough. Now, yes, we are saved by faith alone. Paul says that, but James then says that faith alone is still incomplete because faith, saving faith, then will echo out through our actions. It will bear fruit, as Jesus says in John 15. It will be something that the world will be able to see because it's carried out in what we do. Here James is addressing Jewish Christians who would be very familiar with the story of Abraham. James uses this figure, this undisputed father of the Jewish people to demonstrate this truth that he's teaching here. This idea, not just of faith and works, but also the idea of friendship with God. He says that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And, James says, he was called God's friend. I'll tell you right now, there are not a lot of people in Scripture that are called God's friend. It doesn't happen all that often. In church... I pray it would be said of me. I pray that it might be said of you. See, Abraham didn't write this book. Abraham's not the one saying, oh, you know what? I'll put in here, Abraham was a friend of God. No, James, all these generations later, is saying his legacy is lived in such a way that you knew Abraham and God were friends. I hope, and not by my own power, but I hope that generations after me might think, might know that I was a friend of God. See, friendship with God is very different from friendship with the world. And James uses Abraham to to draw this analogy of someone who was considered a friend of God. And then in chapter 4, he makes it clear that something else is happening in the church. Look at James 4 and verse 4. Again, I want us to focus on this verse as James's kind of primary accusation against the church. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There are two words in that verse, in that verse 4, that I want us to focus on for just a moment. The first is enmity. Now, I struggle on that, saying it correctly, and I told my class uh, in, in, on Wednesday night that this is a word, enmity, that I, I confess to you I have never heard in my life used in context outside of James chapter 4, verse 4. I know the word because of James chapter 4, verse 4. I don't know one person in my life that I've ever heard properly use the word enmity in conversation. But while it's not a, 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 it's not a word that we really use a lot, it's kind of a Bible word, at the same time, it's easy to look at that word and know what it means. It kind of looks just like enemy. And in fact, he says, he says it again, James says, whoever becomes a friend of God or a friend of the world, rather, has made himself an enemy 
of God. Other translations go stronger than that because enmity, again, that's not really a word that hits us hard. It's not a word we use all the time. Other translations will say, anyone who is a friend of God creates hostility against God. Uses the word hatred against God. One particular passage goes as far to say, don't you know that friendship to the world is hatred toward God? But the other word I want us to focus on that's in verse 4 is the word that James uses to call the church. You might have noticed what exactly he's calling the church. This is why I say this is a message with an accusatory tone. Because look again at what he says in verse, in verse 4 again. He starts with, you adulterous people. Now, this time, let's see how he puts it in another version. That's NIV. Let's go to NASB, which is a more, um, a more literal translation. In the NASB, he says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the NASB is a translation that relies more where the NIV and the NLT try their best to be things that are easier to read. The NASB is to be as close as it can to the original language. That's why you see a different word here. While there's been a push in the past several years among newer translations to kind of demasculinize the Bible, that is to turn certain pronouns that are masculine into neutral ones and be more accepting of everyone. For example, my dear brothers and sisters instead of my dear brothers. What's interesting in this case is that some translations, newer translations, are kind of doing the opposite. The original Greek word used in James 4.4 4 is not the masculine. It is the feminine form of the word adulterer. He is literally calling the church a cheating wife. He's literally calling the church an adulteress using the female form here. When we studied James 4 this past week on Wednesday night, I told my class that it reminds me, this moment of, of calling out with this word reminds me of two times that the Hebrew word adulteresses is used in the Old Testament. One of those, and they're both in uncomfortable passages, one of those is the book of Hosea. If you know the book of Hosea, you know that not only does God call Israel a bunch of adulteresses, he says to Hosea the prophet, I want you to marry a woman who, was, who is unfaithful. I want you to go and physically, we're talking literally, marry an adulteress. God says, I know already she's going to cheat on you. And I want you to marry her. Why would God do that to a prophet? Because it is to symbolize the spiritual truth of what Israel had done to God. When he uses that term adulterous, it is, to, it is to symbolize what spiritually Israel had done to God. The people of God, the very called out people of God. God chose one nation in the world in those days to be his nation, the nation of Israel. And, and they turned, and in many places it says, prostituted themselves to other gods. The Bible very often uses relationship language 
adultery language to describe what Israel had done to God. And another place, that the second place is in Ezekiel chapter 23. We're not going to read anything from Ezekiel chapter 23 today. And if you know that chapter, you will be thankful of that. I remember the poor girl, whoever it was, the first time that we did the reading, we do a physical out loud reading of the word from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, We do that before the National Day of Prayer. And I remember first year we did it. I happened to be in here while this poor girl was reading Ezekiel chapter 23. And, and I'm not going to tell you what's in there. You're probably going to go home afterwards if you don't know and, and go look. But it's vulgar. It, this, is, this is graphic material. This is upsetting stuff in, in no uncertain terms because God is talking about two prostitutes. God is talking about two adulteresses who are representing the nation the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and again, it is a spiritual picture that while God married you and you promised yourself spiritually to God, you are cheating with the world. You are in an adulterous relationship with the world. So the truth is that James, in this passage, once we get to the New Testament book of James, he's using a a fairly standard biblical precedent of calling out God's people, in this case, the church, the bride of Christ, for her adultery by going after the things of the world instead of focusing on the things of God. In fact, James goes as far as to call it enmity. He goes as far as to call it hostility, even hatred toward God. In their adultery, James says that Christ's bride has made herself an enemy of God. And so today, the words of James pierce the heart of the church. Not just the 2,000 years ago early church, who is living among the world and very often getting it wrong, but the today 21st century church who is living among the world and is oftentimes getting it wrong. We're living. We're living in unfaithfulness. We're living in adultery against the King of kings and the Lord of lords who purchased us to be his own through the blood of his son, Jesus. And then we go out in the world and we live like, we're, like we love the world. And that's why James, is, is James 4 takes such a tone is because this is not a small issue. And so we have to understand as we go on today and and understand this issue of being friends with the world, we have to understand what that means. That's the next, um, that's the question that is next in your notes. What kind of friendship are we talking about, it says. That's a really good question. We have to understand what James means by friendship with the world. Are we not supposed to love the world, for, for example? That is, show love to, be kind to, forgive the people in the world? That's not what James is talking about. After all, John chapter 3 tells us that God loved the world enough that he sent his son into the world. 
So we're not talking about the love of Christ and showing that kind of love to the world. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that the church is to be the light of the world, shining the light of Jesus to bring truth to those who know him. It's hard to do that if you're not somehow among the world. And so the question is, what does James mean about friendship with the world? So to understand James' words of rebuke in James chapter 4 to the church, we really have to understand what he means by that phrase. What does he mean by friendship with the world? Your next line, we're going to look at three different things that this friendship implies because truly it can be either side. We're going to look at the idea of friendship in general because there are two options. There is friendship with God that he talks about, and Abraham is the example of that. And there is friendship with the world of which he is accusing the church in James chapter 4. So let's look at three major uh, points of focus about this friendship that James speaks of. Number one, friendship implies faithfulness. Friendship implies faithfulness that that piggybacks on the idea of that adultery word that he uses in James chapter 4, verse 4. Another way to, to say adultery is unfaithfulness. In fact, it is, it is a big enough issue that it is the only uh, unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, is the only biblical reason that is ever given for divorce. We call it marital unfaithfulness. It's another way of saying being unfaithful, committing adultery against your spouse. It's a pretty big issue in the Word of God. And friendship, therefore, if it is the opposite of that, friendship with God or friendship with the world implies faithfulness to whoever you are friends with. That's why it's such a big issue. Let's look at another passage about friendship, this time where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is in John chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that to lay down a life, one's life for one's friends. He says, You are my friends. Jesus is saying this. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I am making known to you. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might bear fruit. Go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. Jesus makes it clear that his friends are the ones who follow his commands in faithfulness. James makes the same point when talking about Abraham in James chapter 2. Look at it again. James 2 verses 20 through 23. You foolish person, James says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
Abraham was credited as righteous and became a friend of God because of his faithfulness. And James makes it clear in the book and in this passage in James 2 that that faithfulness includes doing what is right. Go read the book of James this week if you need an extra kick in your pants, in your spiritual pants, because this is James's point. It's not enough to just have faith. Your faith must be expressed in your works and in your actions. It includes doing what is right. I can't claim faith and have no fruit. Look again at James 4 and verse 4. This is, this is the, that hammering home moment again. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who, look at that word, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Let me ask you this about, let, let, let's, let's make it a, a marital analogy. Let's talk about marital unfaithfulness between a husband and a wife. Do you wake up one day and accidentally cheat on your spouse? Do you wake up one morning in the bed with your spouse and realize that you have committed adultery somehow? Or is it an on-purpose act of unfaithfulness against the one you've married? And the same is true with God. We don't just somehow and someday wake up and realize, you know what, I'm, just, I'm not married to God anymore. Somehow I've been living in a relationship with the world. This is a choice. This is a, that's why it's sin. This is a choice that we make to deliberately, in, in absence of being faithful to God, we are in fact being faithful to the world. Now, look at what James says. If you want to get even more confused and convicted, look at what James says in the very next verse, and this time verse 5 of chapter 4. He says, or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he, God, jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us? Now, I've seen a couple of people with this, this look on their face. This is a difficult to, passage, a difficult verse to understand. I, I think it's very interesting to try to understand what he means here. What does James mean by the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us. It seems to me that he's not talking about the Holy Spirit for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not capitalized. That's pretty easy because most versions of the Bible that are talking about the Holy Spirit use a capital S. Well, it's not there. Number two, it says God jealously longs for that Spirit that he's put in us. And why would God long for a spirit if, if we're talking about the Holy Spirit, if we're talking about the spirit that is, in fact, God himself? So what else dwells in us? Our sinful nature. Now, are we saying that God is the one who placed our sinful nature in us? No. No, we are not. Our sinful nature came because of the act of sin coming into the world, because of man and woman's disobedience in Genesis chapter 3. But Scripture is clear that God created man and woman in His likeness, in His image. And in doing so, He placed the Spirit in us. 
A spirit that has passions and desires, a spirit that longs and yearns, and the truth is that spirit will either long or yearn from the th- for the things of God or the things of the world. It's why someone who is opposed to God and lives a life of sin or maybe a life of addiction, uh, of substance abuse, or something that is, that is claiming their life, they do that with great fervor. They do that with great passion because God has placed a, a spirit that longs for and yearns for something that will fill us up. And that spirit and passion and desire can be used to chase after all the wrong things. That's why Scripture says that God longs jealously for that spirit that he placed in us, for that desire that he placed in us, because God jealously longs that the spirit he placed in us will seek after him in faithfulness, that our God-given desires will be for God and not for the world. So let me ask you a question. It's in your notes. Let me ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer these personal questions, by the way. This is between you and the Lord. Which is easier for you? Faithfulness or faithlessness? You don't have to answer it out loud, but honest, honestly, think about it. Which of those is easier for you to be faithful to God or to be unfaithful to God? Which of those is your standard setting? Which of those is natural for you? Which way do you tend toward on your own? Is it faithfulness? It's not for me. Look at number two. We've already seen that friendship implies faithfulness, but also friendship implies closeness. Friendship, when James talks about friendship, he's talking about closeness. We might call it proximity. We might call it intimacy. Look at what Proverbs 17 verse 17 says. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for a time of adversity. When we're talking about friend, when we're using the word friend in Scripture, we're not just talking about just, you know, a a guy that you just, you know, nod your head out in the office hallway. That's not a friend. A friend loves at all times. A friend is a relationship that is characterized by love. What's interesting to me is that here in the book of Proverbs where the writer speaks of friendship, he uses the same Hebrew word, reya, for for friend there, that is the same word that is used in Leviticus 19, 18. Let me read you what that says. You try to find that same word. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. When he talks about friend in Proverbs 17, it's the same Hebrew word as the word neighbor. There are synonyms in the Hebrew language. Friend and neighbor are used. That same rea, that same Hebrew word is used in one case to say one thing and in one to say the other. Why? Because a friend implies someone you're close to, even maybe physical proximity to 
a person. They are your neighbor. John 15, verse 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. In John 15, Jesus is talking with his disciples, the 12 disciples, the followers that he spent the most of his time with during his ministry, the men he was closest to physically and spiritually of all the people in the world. Here's a question today. I want you to think about it. Can you have relationship with someone that you're not physically close to? Think about it. Can you have a relationship with someone, call it long distance, that you are not physically close to? Last week, you may know, it's been actually uh, about two weeks ago now that the governor of Kentucky finally lifted the year-long restrictions that were in place about visiting people in the nursing home because of COVID. This is a big blessing, I believe. Uh, Jessica Mattingly, who is a member here at Nineveh Christian Church, got to see her mother for the first time in a year. Um, her mother deals with dementia, and it had been a year since she had got to see her. She got to see her on Friday. Um, I asked her permission to share this story with you, and I'm going to try not to cry when I read what she wrote. One second. All right. Here's what Jessica wrote. A little over a year ago, I was told I could not enter the nursing home my mom resides at. I thought a few weeks would be, wouldn't be too bad, but little did I know that this situation would go on for an entire year. Immediately, a battle began on just making sure that my loved one was cared for the way she was when I was present in her care. I continued to fight to see my mom, though it did no good. I emailed politicians on all levels. Most never took the time to even acknowledge my concern. Once in the year, I got to see her inside through a sheet of plexiglass six feet apart with somebody timing us and watching us during our visit. That just made things worse, she said. Once I got to see her with less restrictions, but not in her home environment, but that did bring me some relief. She said, it seemed several times I would schedule to see her outside or inside or something, and something would happen that stopped the visit, such as inclement weather or more cases rising of covid Finally, she said, after a year, I heard through the grapevine that nursing homes were opening to visits, and I did not get my hopes up. Finally, about a week later, an employee called me to tell me the, the new rules. I was able to see my mom with minimal restrictions in her environment after one year. It was a great relief, and it was an answer to many, many prayers when I was able to sit with her in her room to show her pictures of her grandchildren that she's only seen through a window a handful of times, to assist her with things such as eating and putting on makeup. I was so relieved and so thankful that things felt almost normal. Honestly, it was as if my mother and I had not missed a day. She said she looks good, she seems okay, and I pray that this never has to happen again. 
She said, I had a great feeling of thankfulness to God that this day finally came and that I will be able to schedule another visit very soon. Can you have a relationship with someone that you don't see physically? Sure you can. Is it easy? Jessica would say, no, it really isn't. The, you, you can make other ways. There's, there's tools at our disposal now. Some of you all know how to, to do Zoom meetings that had no idea what in the world Zoom was before. Some of you can, can FaceTime, you know, without your kids and grandkids showing you which button that is on your phone now. Some of you know how to do that. There are ways to have a long-distance relationship. There are ways to have a relationship that's not face-to-face, but it's certainly not preferable. And the truth is, that's the kind of relationship we have with God, right? We've never physically been in the room with Him. We've never physically been literally face-to-face with God. And yet, friendship with God means intimacy, means closeness with God. Look at what says about Moses in Exodus chapter 33. This is Exodus 33, 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. That, that verse floors me, that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The truth is, church, that God desires to be close to his children. God desires closeness with his children. Before the fall, go back and read in Genesis, it says that the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Can you imagine? The Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Moses Moses spoke to God. God spoke to Moses like he was speaking to a friend. And yet, Scripture also tells us that Moses never saw God's face. How do you speak to somebody face to face without ever being able to see their face? The truth is Moses had an intimate, everybody else shut out, focused, intimate relationship with God. He spoke to him like he was speaking to a friend. How do we do that? The question is, and it's next in your notes, be honest. Which is easier for you, to be close to God or to be close to the world? Be honest with yourself. Let's have an open spiritual evaluation of yourself and your relationship with God today. Which is easier? Look at James 4 verses 1 and two, this is where we started today at the beginning of chapter one or four. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You kill, James is talking to the church. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now quarrel and fight, I believe that more of the church than I do kill. You do not have because you do not ask God. This is church people that he's talking to. You see, our sinful nature, church, is just that. It is natural for us. It is natural for us to be closest to the things of this world. 
It takes intentionality for us to be close to God. Let me say that again. It takes intentionality. It takes you being intentional, you being purposeful for you to be close and in an intimate relationship with God. I will say this, I don't think that you can be in an intimate relationship with God unless you are spending time in God's Word. You cannot be in an intimate friendship relationship with God unless you are spending time in God's Word. I will say this, and I say it unapologetically, I don't believe that you can be in an intimate, close relationship with God unless you are in relationship with His body, the church. That's how he intended it. I will say this, I don't believe that you can be in an intimate, close relationship with God where all of your God time is one hour on Sunday morning where you go to church. It's not enough. You know why it's not enough? Because every other one of your hours throughout the week is spent hand in hand right beside the world. You live in the world. You live among the world. You walk beside people. You work with people in the world. God's not physically with us, but there are a lot of things physically with us that that go against God. There are a lot of things you do spend time in the presence, in the physical presence of throughout your week that go against God's will for you. That's why all the more we have to be intentional in pursuing a an intimate relationship with God. Church, that's not just going to happen. It is something that must be pursued with intentionality. It must be pursued with our time. It must be pursued with our efforts or with our resources. We've got to give, in order to be friends with God, we've got to give more time and effort and resource and energy to the things of God than we do the things of the world. And that's not natural for us. It's easy to spend time in the world. It's right out there. That's easy. That's natural, church. So the question is, how do we pursue? How do we work to be friends of God? It's the last answer. It's number three in your notes today. Friendship with God requires submission to God. Friendship with God requires submission to God. James starts chapter four with some pretty pointed accusations against the church. You're killing, you're coveting, you're, you're not having because you're, you're not asking with the right motives. You're friends with God, you're cheating on God. But then look at what he says in verses 6 through 10 as he gives us the answer then of how to proceed. He says, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then in verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. 
When we look at verse 6, and he starts that, that second passage with, he gives more grace. I want to I wanna caution you on this, because God, in fact, does give more grace. But sometimes we look at that and we say, well, here's the problem with our flesh. Here's the problem with living in the world. Here's the problem of friendship with the world. But the good news is, as bad as we are at that, we've got more grace. So really don't worry about it. Really don't worry about it because grace covers it up so you don't have to worry about who you're a friend with because under the grace of God, you're covered. And the truth is, under the grace of God, we're covered and we're given more grace than what we have residing in us. But look, look at how he says it. Look again, this time at verse uh, 6, James 4, 6. This time we're going to go into that NASB Again, this again is more literal, more word for word. And it says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, the word in Greek, the Greek word charis, which means grace, it's the same here as it is here. It's used twice. And so he says, yes, that God gives us more grace. But who does God give that grace to? Everybody. But he gives this grace to the humble. So we don't get to arrogantly say, you know what? I'm doing a terrible job. I'm a friend of the world. But at least God gives me more grace. God gives grace, James says, to the humble. To those who seek God. To those who submit themselves to him. That word submit literally means to put oneself in order under. Let me say that again. Submit means to put oneself in order under. It is knowing that your place is under God. It is knowing that on your own, driving the car yourself, holding the reins, you will always be, I will always be a friend of the world. That on my own, apart from God, I will always do what's wrong. I will always be in love with the world and with sin. I will cheat on God. But not if I submit myself under God. Not if I order myself and say, you, God, are in charge, not me. Because then I can submit myself to him. Then I can resist the devil, James says, and he will flee. Then I can draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. Then I can in humility weep, mourn, and wail. I can repent. That's what James is saying here. This is repentance. This is a picture of turning back and not just repenting, but once and for all submitting myself under God. Repentance isn't enough just to turn away from the sin for a time because in my sinful nature, I will always turn back. Repentance must bring submission. Repentance must mean that I order myself under God and follow Him. So let me ask you, last question of the day. Which is easier? To live in humility 
or in pride? Which is easier? Let's evaluate ourselves today openly before God. Which is easier for you? To live in humility or in pride? Which is your natural position? I close today by reading 1 John 2, 15 through 17. This time it's John, not James, but he's saying the same thing. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, John says, pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. I'm going to ask Chad and the band to come out this morning as we close. In church, I say it again. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And that's why this is such a big issue. That's why James, with such a pointed finger, calls out the church. Because we, for many of us in the church, we are connecting ourselves, we are making our lives about things that do not last. We are making, we, we, we are spending more money to get more money, we're to get more power, to get more responsibility, to climb the corporate ladder, to be liked by more people, to be more important and famous in the world in which we live. And those things are going to die. It is the one who does the will of God that will last forever. And church... Some of us need to make some changes because we're focusing on all the wrong things. We're living as friends of the world because well, that's just what the world does. The world pursues money and fame and fortune. And God says, I don't call it that. I call it adultery. I call it unfaithfulness because our hearts have turned from Him. And today, as we have a time of invitation. That's what it is. It's not just a time for those that need to make first-time decisions. And you know what? If you do, God's calling you today. God's calling you to, to, to submit yourself under Him. But for the rest of us, this has got to be a moment of spiritual self-evaluation. Are we living in friendship, in relationship with God? or with the world. I'm going to pray. Terry's going to come forward for a time of invitation. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, forgive us. Convict us, confront us, forgive us of our sins of coming close to the world, being friends with the world, of, of being so in love with the world that we're cheating with our first love, with the one who has redeemed us from sin and death. But instead, we're chasing after things that don't matter. God, convict your church. 
point fingers into our hearts in a way that we need to see and to hear and to, to repent and turn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is open as we stand.